It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 90, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Lucila de Alejandro owns and operates Susie's Farm with her husband, Robin Taylor. Located three miles from the Pacific Ocean and three miles from the Mexican border, Susie's Farm got its start in 2004 and has provided fresh organic produce to the San Diego area through a CSA, farmer's markets, and sales to restaurants and grocers. As a 70-acre urban farm, Susie's Farm provides a rare blend of tractor-scale farming just minutes from the urban core. And Lucila and Robin leveraged their geography and scale to grow rapidly as the local food scene in San Diego took off. But when that local food scene leveled off, they were faced with making hard decisions to save the farm and their relationship. Lucila shares the process they used for making those hard decisions, including a technique with the acronym P-O-E-M, POEM. You'll have to listen to the episode. We'll get into it. We also dig into how she and Robin have created a loyal workforce that carries Lucila's energy and enthusiasm out into the community, how they use farm tours to engage the community and build their customer base, and how vegetable farming actually works in the Mediterranean climate of San Diego. Susie's got a ton of passion, and she brought it all to this conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. I know I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Lucila de Alejandro, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Oh, Chris, thank you so much for having me. It's truly my joy to be here and share this with you. I love it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'd like to start today by having you tell us a little bit about the farm, kind of give us the lay of the land for Susie's Farm. Where are you located? How are you marketing your produce? How many vegetables are you growing? Kind of all that stuff that you talk about to other farmers about. Absolutely. Well, you know, I do a lot of tours on the farm. My favorite thing to do on the farm is to bring people to the farm and walk them around so that they can see where their food comes from. And the first thing I always ask them is, where are you? And it's kind of a funny question. They don't always know how to answer. And uh, what I tell them is that they are in San Diego. Um, we are located three miles north of the border of Mexico, and you can see the border of Mexico from our farm. It's, uh, the Tijuana River Valley is where we are located. And originally that area was called San Isidro, and I'm originally from Mexico. I'm Roman Catholic, and so San Isidro is the patron saint of farmers. So that whole area, of course, we know from our history that river valleys have always been the most fertile, richest soil. And that's where we as human beings, the human beings that we are currently in our evolution, that was such a powerful place of our evolution, this fertile, rich soil. So we're in San Diego. You can see Tijuana from the farm. It's the busiest international border crossing in the world is the Tijuana-San Diego border crossing. Um, And we are also located west of the Interstate 5. So we're about three miles from the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. Um, I like to joke with our clients when they come down to the farm, you are on the most southwesterly farm in the contiguous United States. Congratulations. You can cut that off your bucket list. 
Um, <laughs> good, right? I like we're also, it. We're also about a mile and a half from the Tijuana River estuary. So we're in this really interesting area, migratory pattern for birds as well, because we're close to the ocean. We're right where the southernmost tip of the San Diego Bay is. So again, about a mile and a half from the southernmost tip of the San Diego Bay and just north of the Tijuana River. So uh, it's a really interesting area because we're an urban farm. San Diego County is ranked number 16 in the United States for organic farms, mostly citrus, mostly avocado, and mostly uh, floral. Uh, lots of flowers come from San Diego County. Um, but we are a, a USDA certified organic vegetable farm. And we grow over 100 different varieties of fruits and vegetables. You know, we like to say everything from arugula to zucchini. Um, we do you pick events because we're an urban farm. We have neighbors literally on the north side of our farm that are in uh, subdivision. Um, and we're in San Diego, which I think is ranked number three in the state of California for population. So um, we're, we're of the people and near the people and with the people. Something that's interesting, you said you're an urban farm. Mm-hmm. A lot of times urban farms are micro farms, but you guys aren't farming on a micro scale. No, we're not farming on a micro scale at all. We did start on a micro scale, just one acre. We were farming of a three acre property, but pretty quickly I realized that we would not be able to have the kind of impact. The vision that I had for Susie's farm from the beginning was that I wanted to feed our community. And at the time I, I defined that as San Diego County. Um, San Diego City proper is about 1.3 million uh, people, and the county is about 3.5 million at the last census. So I really had a pretty big vision, but I wanted to be local, right? I mean, not just in the term because it's a cool or hip term to say local, but because I wanted that community feeling, the feeling of all of all of us, all of we living beings in this area being nourished from this area and the food being one aspect of that. And again, I'm passionate about getting people down to the farm so that they can see that for themselves because it's not just the food that nourishes the people. It's that space, the air, really it's the space when you're in a city it's cars, it's traffic, it's density. You're surrounded by single, especially in San Diego, people are right on top of each other. Um, and the farm that the two properties that we currently farm combined are about 70 acres. So when people come for tours, they kind of, they step out of their car, they walk out onto the property and you can see that visible exhalation and the letting go of everything that the city can burden you with. All the things that you carry with you are released when they get to the farm. It's very powerful. It, it's something that I want to talk about as we, as we go on, because you guys do a CSA program, you do farmer's markets. Um, are you also selling to restaurants? We do. We When we first started, we I was going very scattershot. 
I'm like, who wants to buy what we got? I got some great stuff and I want you to have it. It's amazing. And we would go to restaurants and I would meet with the chefs and I would say, I'll grow for you. Here's a catalog. Tell me what you want. I'm excited. I was a newbie and uh, I still feel that way. I would still grow for any chef who had a passion and wanted to feed his or her clients the same way that we want to feed them, not just feeding them, but nourishing them. I'm really devoted to that. But ultimately it becomes, uh, comes down to the money and people don't want to spend their money that way. At least not enough people to cause a tipping point. There was a period in our history, we started in January of 2009, just to put it in perspective, where that became, um, the city of San Diego was inflamed with that. Restaurants, chefs, um, the population, uh, city of San Diego went from about 12 farmers markets to 45 farmers markets. In a very, yes, it was, uh, like I said, an inflammation. It was an explosion. Um, people wanted it. And every small community within San Diego, right? Because everyone wants to, you're not just a San Diegan. You are from North Park or you live in um, Pacific Beach, you know, just to give you some ideas of different communities. Everyone wanted their own farmer's market. They wanted to be able to support it. Um, so there was tremendous growth and we grew along with that. Um, and that has since, unless you keep putting logs on a fire, that has started to die down a little bit. So we've lost a lot of our chef um, population, in fact. They've come to San Diego. Um, I think there were a lot of passionate chefs in San Diego, a lot of really passionate restaurateurs that wanted to create something, and it was being creative. And as that died down, uh, they were left lonely and, and, and confused, yeah. wondering where did everybody go? You were, we were all just here a minute ago and now you've moved on and I haven't moved on. And now a lot of those chefs have moved on and a lot of the talented chefs, um, have left San Diego and have gone to cities where they were able to, sustain they were able to sustain that or the culture of the city was better able to support that when we were talking before the show lucila you told me about getting started on the farm in 2009 and then kind of how the farm grew we were talking about how many acres are you actually farming maybe you could run over that again for us absolutely absolutely it would be my joy so when we started we were just on one acre and it was me and me and me and the mouse in my pocket right it was the royal it was the royal us (laughs) Me, myself, and I. Uh, I was doing all the seed selection, all the planting. Everything was by hand, making all the rows by hand, planting everything by hand, uh, staking everything by hand. uh, And on one acre for one person, that's a substantial amount of work. So we um, found, actually she found us wanted to work on a farm. And this woman ended up becoming our farm manager, Ellie Sherman. And she really was a gift from God or the universe or whatever you would like to attribute that to. And she started working at the farm. Um, And for those first few months, it was perfect. You're planting, you're waiting for your production to increase and to actually see the fruit of your labor. Um, And when it started to get close, 
I turned more of the farming over to Ellie and I became the mouthpiece and remained the mouthpiece for the farm. And this is when I began to um, get into farmer's markets, uh, grow the CSA program, promote the CSA program, go to chefs, show our product, go to wholesalers. Um, and pretty quickly, as I said, I realized we one acre wasn't going to cut it. I desired that bigger um, audience so that they could understand more about their food um, and really more about the component of the food being the energy. You know, if you are what you eat, then what you eat matters. And when you eat food that has been loved, has been cared for, has been attended to, watched over, uh, then I believe you feel that way, that that food really changes you on a cellular level. So your food is energy, you consume it, and then that becomes the energy you put out in the world. So when you eat well, you feel well, and then you act well. And then the people around you become well as a result of the interchange of your energy with them. And that really became the piece that I started to grow. So then the farm went to three acres. And then we were offered 100 acres. Now, this is all within a six-month time period. We went from oh, one wow. acre, in, yeah, from one acre <laughs> in January of 2009 to three acres in March of 2009. We were offered 100 acres in May of 2009, and my answer is always yes, yes. And I said to my husband Robin, "Let's do it." And he was like, "You're crazy." And I said, "I know. Isn't it great?" So we said no to 100 acres. We felt like that was too much too soon. But by July of 2009, we took 40 of those 100 acres. By that November, we had 70 of those 100 acres. And by February of 2010, we had taken all 100. And from there, we continued to expand until we had 160 acres. Again, as the culture in San Diego grew, as people were excited, as chefs were promoting it, Farmers markets became popular. CSA became popular. It was the cool thing to do. We grew along with that. And as that, as people perhaps realized that it's not just a cool thing that you do one time, it really is a lifestyle. And if you're going to choose the lifestyle, it's one thing to talk about this lifestyle and love the lifestyle and think the lifestyle is great. And it's another thing to be committed to it and say, yes. Yes, yes to my CSA box, even if they're putting freaky vegetables in there that I don't know what to do with it, I still say yes to my CSA box. I still say yes to my CSA box, even if I forgot to pick it up and I know I want my money back, but I forgot to pick it up and I say yes to the CSA program. I still say yes to my farmer. I still say yes to my local farmer's market, even though I went like the first three weeks and now it's like, oh, it's so late and I'm tired from work and the kids have homework and then I got to get to soccer and uh, I still say yes to my farmer's market and I still go no matter what. That's just what I do on Thursdays, no matter what. And that's ultimately what started to happen is that. I don't know if we want to call it excuses or just reality or a lack of commitment, 
Um, and as that changed, then we also, we talk about it a lot at the farm. We tack, right? Like if sail, it's a sailing term, you know, you're catching the wind and the thing is moving and you're moving with it. And then all of a sudden the wind is gone and you can either stay dead in the water or you can tack and catch the next, the next bit of wind. So we've become not just farmers, but sailors as well, apparently. <laughs> well, you live by the ocean, so it's perfectly understandable. <laughs> You're farming on a, on a hundred acres uh, or 140 acres. You guys are, I mean, obviously a huge thing going on in San Diego yeah. and you must be moving a tremendous amount of produce and, and this market starts to, to shift away. The wind starts to shift on you. Yes. How did you tack? What direction did you go? That's a great question. Um, how did we tack? Well, for a while there, we didn't tack fast. I'm going to be honest with you. And we sat dead in the water for quite a while. Um, we were confused. And it took us a little bit to recover, and we lost a lot of money. Uh, we lost a lot of money. I often say to people, you don't go into farming because you want to be a millionaire, although I assume there are millionaire farmers out there, and I would love to chat with those guys and see what they're doing. I think they're not doing it like we are. I don't think that they're doing a polyculture hand, almost, you know, we have machinery now. We have tractors that make the rows now and they lay the plastic, they lay the drip line. Um, we have a water wheel that helps us with our planting. But for the most part, if we look at the Pareto principle of 2080, 80% of what we do is still all hand by hand. We still do hand weeding, hand harvesting. A lot of our planting is done by hand. Uh, packing is mostly all field pack. Um, and the truck, uh, the truck comes around in the middle of the field and picks everything up and takes it to the warehouse. And so what we started to do was we started to communicate more deeply with our clients uh, to understand how we could best serve them. And what we understood from that was that we had a small, devoted group of clients that were no matter what clients. These were the clients that were no excuses clients, that they were going to come if it was raining to the farmer's market, which it doesn't rain that much in San Diego. So I got to be honest with you, you know, <laughs> but if it was too hot, they, it was their priority to come every Wednesday night or every Tuesday night. And then we had to make the hard decisions about closing certain things down, shutting down, not going to farmer's markets anymore, even though we had a loyal client base, but we were losing money and uh, we just couldn't do that anymore. We had to start to let go of certain fields. Um, because we didn't have the business to support it. We had to do scary things like raise our prices, and we don't like to raise our prices. But the city of San Diego just passed a new law. The minimum wage law just went up for the city of San Diego. And we're not in an ag area. But we have a lot of friends who are in ag areas, like the Imperial Valley out there in Yuma, where they're growing thousands of acres of monocrops. Um, and it's all ag. When they have to harvest broccoli, they call the subcontractor and the subcontractor comes and the subcontractor worries about hiring the people and getting the porta potties in there. And they just come and that stuff's harvested and it's all by piecework. We didn't do that. We 
chose to pay our employees per hour, not per piece. And and all of those things, all of those decisions, if we had done it a different way, it would have cost us too, you know, because the cost isn't just monetary. There's an emotional cost. There's a spiritual cost. There's the physical cost of of having staff. Because we're in San Diego, the good and the bad and the ugly of it is that we grow 365 days a year. So we often think of our farmer friends in places like Wisconsin or Vermont, and we think, ah, it must be so nice. They get time off for good behavior. You know, like it snows. You can't farm there. I wonder what that would be like to just recover from a strenuous, season and dream over the winter when those seed catalogs start coming in, what will we do differently this year? What was successful for us? Where were our failures? What will we let go? What will we try that's new? What can we depend on? What can we hope for? And for us, there's no rest. There is no rest. And I'm sure I ha- there are my other farmer friends out there who have a temperate, you know, they grow in a temperate zone and, and they also don't have a rest. And again, that's, uh, that's exhausting in a different way. You know, emotionally, that's exhausting to feel like you never get a break. Or if you decide to take a break, the farm is still happening and, and could something be happening on the farm? Um, yes, of course, something's happening on the farm. Could there be a crop failure? Yes, of course that could happen. Or, you know, there's a heat wave or there's, you know, we've been in a drought for a million years. So our soil is really in bad shape right now because the water hasn't come and leached all the salts and everything out of the soil. And so that's ways that we've had to tack, you know, that drought. We thought we were going to get an El Nino last winter. We were so excited. It didn't happen. Okay, so now what do we do? We have to let a few more acres go because our production quality is down because of things like the heat. Um, And so we closed farmer's markets. Um, which means that we lost some CSA clients. We're not doing so many wholesalers anymore. Um, we've reduced the numbers of restaurants that we, uh, that we att- um, go to. Um, so, so those are some of the ways that we have tacked. So you talked about how we do things out here in Wisconsin, right? We, mm-hmm. we farm all summer. And then in the wintertime, even if you're doing a lot of season extension, there's still some relative downtime to, mm-hmm. to kind of pause, evaluate, and re- reflect and plan for your changes. Well, you guys are farming 365 days a year because you don't get, my understanding about the climate in San Diego is that it it never gets too hot to grow vegetables and it certainly doesn't get too cold to grow vegetables. How did you guys do the planning for managing the downsizing of your operation? Because that's a huge decision and and something that I think goes against a lot of people's guts, right? I mean, you know, bigger and and bigger and and bigger and and bigger and is an easy thing to do. But saying, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna shrink this and make it sizable," is difficult emotionally, but it's also a pretty difficult intellectual exercise to do too. To say, "I'm gonna give up the money from that farmer's market. I'm gonna pull off of that delivery route." How did you guys do that in the middle of everything going on? Oh my gosh, Chris, you sound just like Robin. <laughs> my husband, my partner, you know, that those conversations take a season. 
and multiple seasons. And it's happening concurrently to watching your sales figures go down and having to lay off your staff. Oh my gosh. There are few things as heart wrenching as laying off your staff. Um, at the top of our game, we had 138 employees. And I used to say that with a tremendous point of pride. And I still do say that with a tremendous point of pride because we as a community, not just the farm, the farm cannot exist without the community. That's the whole point of community supported agriculture, right? The community supports the agriculture and the agriculture supports the community. So it's this beautiful cycle that runs back and forth, back and forth. And um, one doesn't stop and one doesn't begin. So to be able to say we have 138 families that we're helping them with their house payment or they're putting shoes on their children's feet or if those children are getting piano lessons or car payments. I mean, that was huge. So then to lay people off, it was extreme, was excruciating. It's excruci it has been, that has been excruciating. And the thing about the farmer's markets too is that's cash in hand. That is cash in hand. And there's a very, that's pretty powerful to be able to walk away from the farmer's market. Even farmer's markets where we were only bringing in $300. And I promise you, we were spending more than $300 to get there. But, but, Feeling, seeing $300 cash in your hand felt like something. It felt real. It felt real. You know, PayPal, credit card payments on my CSA, that looks real when I look at my bank statement, but cash in hand feels real the way that when you pull that strawberry off the vine, off the plant, and you, and you bite into it, and you're tasting the juices and you're crunching on those seeds and that, that flesh is bursting in your mouth. That's the fruit of your labor. All the worry, all the preparation, all the, I love the word that you use right now, evaluation. All of the attention, the concern, the desire, the hope, the prayer to grow this thing. Now I'm not just talking about the plant. I'm talking about the whole enterprise. And then it doesn't turn out the way you thought it would. And how many crop failures, how many, you know, to my farmer friends out there, how many times has had that happened to you this season that you planted something and you had an expectation, you calculated this row is going to, I'm going to plant this many plants on this row and my yield from this plant times this, so much math, right? Over this growing season, this production season, I'm going to harvest off of these green beans for six weeks and this row is 150 feet and I'm going to have two per 12 inches. That's this, okay, off of this acre, I'm going to make whatever, $40,000. I'm going to yield $80,000. And then it ends up being 6,000 or they didn't take. Oh, I, that's my favorite. <laughs> I didn't get the germ. I thought I would. Okay. It's still early enough. Get back in there and, and plant again. Maybe it wasn't the seed. Maybe it was the critters. Maybe it was the heat. Maybe oh all them. just so many variables. And so you really, it's, um, 
have to be honest. You have to do a lot of personal development. <laughs> You've got to learn to not take it personally. It's, you know, man versus nature. If we remember that from our uh, literature classes in high school, right? It's like man versus man. It's man versus self. It's man versus God. And it's man versus nature. You know, it's like, okay, it's not me versus you. That's just the way it goes. So there's a lot. You have to get really comfortable with uncertainty and really comfortable with you can do all the calculations in the world. But until you are pulling up the black plastic from that field and until you've pulled up the black plastic and the black hoses and the tractor has gone in there at the end of that production, you just don't know how it's going to be. You don't know. You can't, you can't guess if you're going to have a heat wave out of season in February that's going to make your strawberries go sooner than you thought. And you had a six week strawberry picking festival planned for April, but your strawberries are coming in February and you don't have anything in April and your clients are mad because they came to pick strawberries and they're picking peas instead. (laughs) You just got to laugh at that and say, okay, next year we're not going to call it a strawberry festival. We'll just call it a spring festival. (laughs) We'll try again. You, st- you kind of have to just let go, right? Yeah. You talk about like that farmer's market where you were making $300 yeah. at the market. Yeah. So walk me through how you and Robin actually made the decision to pull the plug. What, I mean, did, were you guys sitting down and combing through your bookkeeping system? Were you looking at records? Was it just kind of a, or was it just a, a gut feeling that built over time that that market wasn't worth it? It was both. You know, you have a gut feeling at first, and a lot of the costs are soft, at least for us. To my farmer friends out there who are more number-oriented than we are, or perhaps who have been doing it longer than we have, who have a better system for bookkeeping, I say, God bless you, call me. And also that's because of how we grew so quickly over such a short amount of time, We didn't start with the end in mind, and that has really been an Achilles heel for us. So at first, I'm extremely intuitive. You know, if you do that Myers-Briggs test, I'm an ENFP, which means I'm an extrovert, intuition, perceiving, feeling, okay? So you just get, you get the feeling first, the same way that sometimes you can look at a field and just get the feeling like, ah, something's not right here. The plants don't look robust. The market doesn't look robust. The, you know, I think farmers are very intuitive. In fact, you have to be when you're looking at your fields and you're looking at the air and you're looking at the sun and you're, you know, you're just looking at the quality and the health of your plants. And you just get a feeling like, wow, these look great. And then sometimes you're looking at them and you're like, wow. Oh, <laughs> and that's what would happen at the market. You'd get the feeling first and we would get the report from our, we call our farmer's market employees, marketeers. So we would ask the marketeers uh, because we um, expanded so quickly that Robin and I were not able to be in the markets. I know for some of my farmer's friends that they're able to be in the markets. We, we made a choice to not do that. We have another farm that we run full-time called Sun Grown Organic Distributors. 
to sprout and wheatgrass farm that my father-in-law started in 1984. And Robin's been working there since he was 17. And I started working there in 1995 when we got married. And so we made a decision that we would attend to the business of the farm on the farm and we would um, cultivate, literally and figuratively, marketeers who could speak for the farm, speak about the farm and the vegetables to our clients in the farmer's market. So we would get a feeling and the marketeers would give us reports. And I think like any farmer for good, bad or ugly, I don't know, for me, hope springs eternal. And I just kept hoping that it would turn around and we would talk to the market manager and they would be working just as hard for us um, to advocate for us. And they would be working to really promote the market. Um, and so then you'd have a good weekend or you'd, we'd have comparative numbers. So last year on this weekend, we did this much. Um, so then let's see what our year to weekend average is. Um, and then after a while you start to look at, then, then you have, then you have a measure. Uh, so, um, our food safety manager at the farm who also happens to be my dad. So we definitely are a family farm. Um, he was in manufacturing and production for the majority of his career in the Silicon Valley doing computer parts. But as they say, it's all widgets. And so parts is parts. And so now instead of computer parts, he does. Uh, manufacturing <laughs> and food safety quality control for our produce. And one of the things, one of the biggest gifts that he gave us a couple of years ago was POEM, P-O-E-M. So the first thing that we do is we plan. We plan what we're going to plant. Then the O is organize. You organize yourself, right? You get your seed, you all of that. And then you execute. So a lot of what we were doing at the beginning was just executing and then executing and executing and executing. We weren't, because we grew so fast, we weren't necessarily planning or organizing. We were executing, executing, executing. And then the last thing is measure. M is measure. And we were not measuring. And so what started to happen is we started to get better about planning so then we would plan and have a very short amount of time with the organizing and then we would execute and then we weren't measuring. And we, this is part of the tacking as well, which is why we were dead in the water for a long time. Or maybe not dead. We were just kind of like, Oh, trying to see which way the wind was blowing. And after we received the gift of poem, we've done a lot more measuring. And since then our bookkeeping and our records, we do a lot more record keeping than we did at the beginning. At the beginning we were keeping up with demand. And, um, and I think that is one of the reasons why um, that was one of our biggest failures was keeping up with the demand, both perceived and actual. So that feeling of like, oh, this thing is going, let's keep going instead of like, okay, this thing is going, let's step off the, let's step out of the river for a second and take a look. Let's look at it before we get back on and get swept away with the current. Um, so we're going to celebrate our seven year anniversary in January. And I feel like I'm a much better farmer than I was at the beginning because of the failures, the crop failures, the business failures, um, and the gifts of the failures. The opportunity within every failure is greater than the failure because that's where the growth is. And so if we look at it, 
from the perspective of we never stop farming. And in Wisconsin, you have the winter to evaluate. Some days I can experience spring, summer, fall, and winter all in one day. You know, the hope of spring, oh my gosh, we're getting to start again um, because you had the death that happens in the autumn. You know, you've, with summer, you're starting to see all the things that you've planted. You're sort of starting to see the fruit of your labor, the robustness of your plant. You can see your production and you're in that current, right? Like, in summer, it's all fruit, and you got to harvest fast to keep up with it, um, and it doesn't stay for very long. And then in the autumn, things start to slow down, and we're already starting to plant our winter crops, and that slowing down, that's the natural evolution of, of that shoulder season. Um, and then the winter, where you do that reflection, and you allow the death to happen, that failure, and so that you can decide again, okay, here comes that shoulder season of spring again, but with hope, with hope and with the dream and the desire and the energy to start again. You know, one of the things that I know from from the time that I spent on boats as a teenager is that when you're tacking, the boom of the sail, the, the piece of wood that holds the sail out, right, it swings really fast. And, oh and of course, it's usually located right at head level on the kind of boats that I was on. And so um, it's easy to get whacked upside the head. And I'm curious if you can share a time when you were tacking and got caught upside the head by the boom. I have gotten whacked upside the head so many times. I, um, I just... I had kind of forgotten about it. Like I had forgotten that you get, that you get boomed. You get boomed. And I'm so grateful for that gift, Chris. Thank you very, very much. Um, I would say the, the boom, the two biggest booms that we had were not fast moving booms. Um, they were kind of slow moving booms maybe where you're looking in another direction and everything's moving sort of very slowly in slow motion, but an object in motion will pick up speed. And so even that slow moving boom, by the time it smacks you across the head, it's got substantial force behind it. It's a little bit of a blunt force trauma there by the time it hits you. So what happened for Robin and I uh, in the August of 2015 and 2014 is that we had unexpected and unseasonal prolonged heat waves that basically annihilated our crops. Anybody who has farmed for any amount of time in the sprout business, to, to put it in perspective for us, because we have both farms, in the sprout business, you plant your sprouts on a Monday, and by Thursday, you're harvesting. So if something happens, you can recover pretty quickly, right? Right. you've got a five-day growing cycle. Even in the sprout business, some of our products like our wheatgrass or our pea greens or our sunflower greens, that's two weeks. If I plant on Monday in about two Mondays, I'm going to be harvesting. 
And it's not like that in farming. The only thing that you can recover quickly on is radishes. It's like 21 days. If you got a, a radish failure, you got 21 days to turn that around. Those two summers, basically, it was the slow-moving boom. And it was actually, we got smacked a couple times because while the thing is happening, it's really like a slow-mo. It's almost like you can see the thing coming at you, but you can't move out of the way. So you don't know how long a heat wave is going to extend. And especially in San Diego with these, it wasn't cooling at night. So sometimes in San Diego, when it gets hot, it'll get hot like uh, 92 degrees for us or, you know, in the high 90s. Over 100, in the 90s and in the 100s is unusual for San Diego. We consider it hot when it's about 88 degrees. And because we're so close to the ocean, even if it's hot in the rest of San Diego, it's not as hot by the farm because we have those cool ocean breezes that keep everything moving. And it will be milder, sometimes as many as 10 degrees cooler at the farm. So we had a six-week heat spell. Everything moves fast when it's hot like that. It literally just burns everything up. So all of our tomatoes, all of our hot season, warm season crops burned. So we didn't have any production. Uh, any, any harvest is what we didn't have. We didn't have any harvest. And what we were harvesting wouldn't keep. So the quality went down on the harvested products. Then anything that we were planting, all of our transplants were burning. And because we do our own plugs, the greenhouses were getting too hot and we couldn't cool them down. Uh, it's like the perfect storm, right? Then anything, yeah. that would, then anything that would keep or that we could get in the ground was shriveling and dying in the earth. And then anything that got past that, a uh, new insect was introduced to San Diego right when we started farming called a bragata bug. And typically in August or September, right, our shoulder, our shoulder season, what we try to do in the spring is we try to push those winter crops as far as we can, the cool season crops into the spring as far as we can. And we try to pull the warm season crops into the spring so that we have something to offer our CSA clients. The same thing happens in the autumn. We try to push those warm season crops as far as we can into November, typically October, November, because we'll still have warm days, but the nights start to cool down and the daylight hours diminish. So those warm season crops, will do well, but they don't do as well, right? Because they don't have as many daylight hours. And then we try to pull those, warm, those cool season crops into September and October when it can still be too hot for them and too many daylight hours. But we're still, right? Got to do what you can, otherwise you got nothing, literally and figuratively. So those cool season crops that we were pulling closer into um, late summer, the infestation the stress on the plant created a weak plant that wasn't able to sustain the heat or the bug infestation. So that boom smacked us and we had pretty much no product for about three months, which means that we had no income for about six months. And that Christmas, 
<laughs> or that holiday season, that winter solstice, we really had to take a hard look at ourselves emotionally and physically, the numbers, and say, can we do this again? And we decided that we would give it another try. We thought maybe that was just a one-off, um, and we're going to try that again. Um, and we paid for it. We paid for it. We pulled all of our money out of college funds for our twin daughters who were born in March of 2007. All the retirement fund that Robin and I had built since we had been married in 95, our 401ks, our savings, all of that we infused into the farm to keep the farm going. Only come to find the following August, so that was in 2014, in August of 2015, last year, the same thing happened. And we really, really, the winter solstice of 2015, we said to ourselves, we are never doing that again. Never. We will close the farm if we have to. We don't want to close the farm. But literally and figuratively, we cannot do that again. There's no money left. You know, you, you don't spend 20 years building up a retirement. Then there's nothing left. Like you can't rebuild that in one year if you're already behind the eight ball. So that was the commitment that we made to each other, that we wouldn't do that again, that we would close the farm if we had to. And so we started to the, the season of getting comfortable with the idea of closing the farm rather than suffering, rather than jeopardizing our daughter's names are Sylvie and Inez, um, rather than jeopardizing Sylvie and Inez's future, rather than jeopardizing our marriage, because we're not just business partners. We're not just co-parents. We're also married partners, and we celebrated our 21-year anniversary this July. And being business partners and being marriage partners and being co-parents is really challenging. Any one of those is challenging, let alone all of those aspects. Um, and we really also had... Uh, a lot of years of our marriage where the business was doing great and the marriage was not. The marriage was a crop failure and it was a pretty substantial crop failure and very painful as well to see that all this effort that we were making, all this energy, all this enthusiasm that we had to grow this business, um, you know, we left everything on the table for the farm and we didn't have anything left for each other. And um, we were raising two small children at the time and the, our marriage came last and our marriage really suffered for a lot of years um, that we were growing the business. I'm happy to report that our marriage now is maybe even better than it has ever been. And it has been work because we got diligent about not giving everything to the farm and leaving the dregs for the marriage. We got disciplined about saying, Susie's farm, this is how much I will give you. Sylvia and Inez, this is how much I will give you. 
even to my marriage partner, this is how much I will give you. And then I have to make sure that I keep myself well and nourished. I'm a living, growing thing as well, just like any crop that we grow. And so I have to make sure that all the elements are there for me to make sure that I'm living and growing. And again, we talk about that a lot in tours. I say the same thing to Robin. I say the same thing to you. I say the same thing to you. I hope that you can receive that message to make sure that you remember that you are also a living, growing thing and that you want to make sure that you have everything that you need in order to bear good fruit. I think it's an easy thing to forget about when you're when you're busy pouring your energy into something that that really has your enthusiasm that is exciting and is growing and is asking for more and more and more like children and farms both do. It's easy to lose sight of building that productive capacity of, of doing the things you need to do to actually be able to sustain your health and, and your involvement rather than just pouring it all in today. Absolutely. Well, you know, we say a lot at the farm that we don't grow vegetables. We grow soil. And if your soil is strong, if your soil is healthy, if your soil is well, the fruit of your labor will show. And that ultimately becomes the thing of you. You are the soil. You are the earth. You are the ground. You are that foundation, that place. And all the other things in your life get planted within you. And then they are the living things that grow also from you. So soil, we know, is a living thing. We know that. That's not just something that we, that's real. And so if we feed the soil and we nourish the soil and we are very, I mean, you really want to look at yourself just like you look at the soil. What do we know? We rotate our crops. Otherwise, what? If you keep planting tomatoes in the same place, in the same spot, the same ones every year, what's going to happen? Especially tomatoes, man. They're suckers, right? They will just right. they will jerk everything out of the soil and they don't care. Boy, tomatoes do not care, man. They're just like, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Well, what in your life is a tomato that's just sucking it out of you? If, it could be your farm, too. And so then, yes, that's okay. But then next year, it's like, guess what, tomatoes? <laughs> I'm moving you over here. And I'm going to plant something else over here. I'm going to plant something that's going to give back. I'm going to plant peas or uh, beans or something that will re-nourish that spot, that will give that back. Or what are the plants that are the cleansers? Right? What are the plants that are the cleansers? All of your root crops, they get in there and they all the gunk in your soil gets leached into those crops. Okay, so looking at you again, your soil, what, how do you need to cleanse yourself? What's in you that needs to get cleansed? And then we have our plants that are our neutral plants, right? They don't suck too much and they don't give too much. Your lettuces, they're just cool. They're hanging out, for example, right? Things like spinach. So, so again, what in your life? You want to rotate your life too just like you would rotate your fields to make sure. And even if you don't rotate your fields, let's say you're just a, let's say you're a monocrop carrot farm. Hopefully you're still doing cover crops. Hopefully you're still doing something in there that, so that your soil doesn't blow away. <laughs> something that's giving back a little bit 
so that when you do go back to plant those carrots or whatever else you're going to plant, there's some substance there. There's there's something there that's going to give that living thing the lift that it needs so that it will grow powerfully with tremendous energy that it will then continue to transform and cultivate as it moves forward. Because that's what we are. We are living things and we need that lift so that we can go out and give it to other people. Lucila, with that, we're going to stop and get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with more from Lucila de Alejandro from Susie's Farm in San Diego. Thanks, Chris. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes for organic growers since 1992. Founder and owner Carl Hammer got started as an organic vegetable grower, where he learned that quality transplants really mattered and that quality transplants come from quality potting soils. Makes sense. Just like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost Company's potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's fall pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price and the best shipping options. With their full truckloads and shared truckloads program, they organize shipping to other regions in ways that sometimes gets prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Plus, you pay a lower price for the potting soil. To get a quote from Vermont Compost, go to the ordering page on their website, submit the request to quote form. This form also adds you to their mailing list so you stay in the loop on the program. And remember, the donkeys that I mentioned earlier are the real thing. And you get a little bit of donkey manure in every patch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com Bandwidth for the show is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using those thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right, and we're back with Lucila de Alejandro from Susie's Farm in San Diego, California. Lucila, one of the things that struck me as I was looking through information about your farm, I saw it in particular in the reviews on Facebook, everybody thinks your employees are great. And you talked earlier about how you're, you were sending employees off the farmer's market. You, you have people that are working as your ambassadors, as your marketeers. And I, I love that phrase, by the way. I'm how do you and and you're somebody that's got so much energy and so much passion and so much clear love for what you're doing how do you get your employees to carry that out into the world with them that's a great question chris so one of the things that we do is we call ourselves a family a family um and I think that has a lot to do with why 
our employees. First of all, who is attracted to the farm? Um, the farm, the way that I'm talking about the farm, I talk like that all the time. And so even when we do trainings, I'm talking like this with our staff. Um, and I've told them from the very beginning, you, it's your farm. I tell that to our clients. It's your farm. It's not my farm. I am the steward of this farm. I don't even own the land. We lease it from the county. It's part of a county park of 1,200 acres called Borderfield State Park. Robin and I live in the city. We, don't, we commute to, to the farm. It's not ours. And so I say to the staff, it's yours. So when you're working the farmer's market, yes, of course, you are representing Robin and I, and you know us, and you know the girls. You've seen the girls grow up. Um, but how would you treat your clients? And that's a pretty big distinction that I have made from the beginning is we don't have customers. We have clients and we service our clients. We are professionals and we treat everyone as such. That's a huge thing for me. Um, now, that's not to say that my staff, they're, you know, they're young and they're cool and they're hip. Oh, baby, are they hip? You know, I like to joke with them. Of, oh, look at that. Uh, hey, that beard, of course, you know, and all that good stuff. And we laugh and I like to say that I'm the old lady and blah, blah. But um, they definitely understand who Susie's Farm is. They are deeply tied to communicating that. And because the farm isn't just the physical act of growing food and selling it, it's not just a transaction. Duh, absolutely not. I'm not saying there are not transactions happening, but it is not solely a transaction. It is for me and as such for our marketeers, an exchange of humanity. And that's really one of the things for me that has been lost as we spend more and more time digitally. We think we're connected because I can check your Facebook status and I can retweet your tweet and I can, you know, like your Instagram feed and, and all of that. But you're not here. I can't see your eyes. I don't know how you feel. I can't see your fear. Now, this is going to, I'm going to edit this by saying, I know that might be a strange thing to say, but my belief is that most of us humans operate from two places, either fear or faith. You either have hope, you believe that it's going to work out, even when it's terrible, you just know, you know that the world, the universe, Everyone collectively really wants what's best, really wants wellness, and we really do want peace, and we want good in the world, and we really are trying and hoping to be that person, that world-class citizen, that, that projection out into the world. Or you could be afraid of what people might think of you or... Um, you know, 
be afraid of the fennel. Like people are afraid of the fennel. Well, I don't want to buy the fennel because I don't know if I'm going to like it. Well, just try it. <laughs> but I don't know if, uh, but I might not like it. Yeah, you might not. You won't know until you try it. And so there is a human engagement that happens in the farmer's market where you are able to give people the gift of their humanity through removing fear and engaging them in faith or hope or encouragement. And it seems really funny because you think it's just vegetables. But I always tell my staff, the vegetables are just the gateway drug. The real deal is encouraging people to step out of their comfort zone, to try something new that for us is no big deal. It's just arugula. But to someone else who wasn't ever raised eating arugula, arugula might as well be some Uranian plant. They just don't even know what they have no idea what to do with that. And so that is empowering to our marketeers. And then they are able to empower our clients. And I tell you what, that feeling of purpose, knowing that you have been trusted with that gift and then you're passing that on. I don't know if that's why uh, uh, that, that might be why our staff loves us, but I will also say that I love our staff. I love them and I pray for them and I wish them well and I'm encouraging them and I have a, a deep, deep interest in them. Each one of them is a human being evolving, 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 evolving. And I believe that they know that. I believe that they want that for themselves. And then I believe that they are people who want to give that to others. I think that's why. How do you guys find people for the farm? Because not everybody's cut out for what you're talking about. No, and that's true. But that'd be true anyway. That'd be true even if I was like, here's the thing. At the farmer's market, they are expected to sell $200 per hour, and we give them these volume incentives, and they've got to make their minimums, and if they don't make them over the process of four weeks, then we let them go and we find someone else. What we have is we have year-to-date expectations from the previous year. You know, the thing is like, look, here's what the market did last year and the year before and the year before. So here's what the trend is for this market over this weekend historically. Don't go under that. Now, here's your aim. This is what we do do this. Here's your aim. Your aim is 10% more than last year. 10%. So if your market did $450 last year, 10% more is $45. Do you think that you could sell $45 more this year than you did last year? Maybe it wasn't even you, right? It was maybe it was somebody else. Well, now that's a measure. And it's not something crazy. I'm not asking someone to sell $2,000 this weekend if last year's market did 450 and the year before it did 420 and the year before it did 250. I'm not, I'm not asking any kind of crazy expectations. Now, your aim is 10. And if you want to blow it out of the water, go 25% on that. So go 25. So if last year it did 450, this year go for 110. Can you do, can, do you think that over the course of four hours, 
if we say that it's $120 over four hours, do you think that over the course of four hours, you could increase the volume by $30? When you break it down like that, that stuff becomes really reasonable and attainable, and then they become self-motivated and excited. And then we do, you know, internally, we do things like, okay, we're doing a CSA promo. Whoever sells the most gets X. Like, of course, we incentivize them. Um, and, and the way our markets are here in San Diego, you can't pay uh, commission. You can only pay hourly. So, yeah, I mean, how do we find people? We say, Susie's Farm is hiring. Send in your application. And then we do short phone interviews first. And I can discern, I can discern pretty quickly in the first two or three minutes if the person's going to work out. I've hired some people right on the phone after talking. I'm not never meeting them in person. Just talking to them on the phone, I can tell that they're the right fit. I can just tell. And then some people, they look good on paper. They say all the right things in the interview. They, and then they start working and it wasn't the right fit. And that's okay, too. Sometimes it's not the right fit because the schedule is not a good fit. Well, sometimes it's not the right fit because they really, 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 really wanted it. But they're overextended or they're afraid to drive the truck. I had to, you know, somebody quit the other day. They wanted it so bad, but they were terrified of driving the truck. Okay, that was easy and unfortunate, you know, but that was a, that was simple. So how do you actually communicate those expectations? Is this something that gets written down? Is it going on the paperwork that you're sending to farmer's market? Or I, I'm curious, I, I'm really interested in the details of this because I think this sure. is so important, this, this establishing expectations. Okay. So there's a pretty thorough training that happens up front and they learn all about the farm. And we encourage them to go on a tour, of course, before they ever step foot in the market. And, uh, I encourage them to go on a tour with me because if they go on a tour with me, even our docents, um, they have read the farm history. They know the farm history and even the docents, though they have tremendous liberty, don't have as much liberty as I do. That's just, that's just the fact, right? No one is going to have as much liberty talking about the farm or, or talking about anything as the owner. So there's a pretty, um, extensive training period. And then we have weekly emails that we send to the marketeers um, that describe uh, the nuts and bolts of that is they get their schedule, they get encouragement. So um, great job, little Italy on last week. You know, I noticed that there was a problem with the canopy and you made it happen. And so proud of you and um, great work, Poway, your sales were up over last year, uh, whatever, right? So that kind of thing. So they get shout outs and then they see their numbers uh, for the upcoming week. The email usually goes out on a Tuesday. Um, and now we're no longer in any weekday markets because the sales were down. So we're only in Saturday and Sunday markets. Um, so then uh, they'll see their schedule for the upcoming week. And then they'll see their number comparison to last year. So Hillcrest, for example, will see that on the first weekend of October last year, they did um, whatever, $2,200 in sales. And so then, okay, your aim above that, and then you're 25% above that. Um, and I should say there's no penalty either. So there's no, there's no penalty 
there's when we are doing an active campaign to incentivize them, there is a carrot there, but there is no penalty. Um, there is no like, well, you haven't done it for four weeks, so you're out. There's none of that. Um, I deeply believe in the evolution of the human being and everyone's doing the best they can. And some days I'm more tired than others or I didn't get good sleep or my nutrition is terrible. And so my performance is down. Now, of course, if they are flagrantly working against the standards, then they're going to get fired, right? I'm not all love, peace, and natural grief. Like, I'm running a business here, too. But we have never had anyone flagrantly over a sustained period of time, like, be late to pick up the, the load, not get to the market on time, um, be unpure with our clients or disrespectful to the market manager. I mean, that's, again, that's not professional. And so because the standard is professionalism, then you're going to, then I hire, you know, a minimum of, of professionalism. And it's really interesting. The majority of the people that get hired, it's not that they, um, that I'm only hiring these kinds of people, but they tend to be college educated or extremely well-read, um, world-class citizens, world-class citizens. And, um, and because my focus is on finding world-class citizens, then that's who I find. I find world-class professionals. Do you do a similar thing with your people in the field? And what do you call your other workers on the farm? I call them the farmers. And you better believe it. I have got world-class professionals in the field. Holy moly. I bow down. I bow down to our farmers in the field. I really do. They have years and years of experience. And one of the things that I talked about before is that ability of, of, to observe, the observance that happens in the field and the way that they are able to report and communicate that information to us. It's very humbling, very, very humbling. It, and it's from everything. It's from everything to... Um, how we're planting in the greenhouse, how we're, how we are transplanting, how we're staking um, the water, um, the the our irrigator, the way we water, the way we weed. Oh, uh, when to harvest, how to harvest? Absolutely, they are world class professionals in the field as well. Absolutely. And where are you finding those folks? Sometimes uh, when we're hiring for marketeers and docents, um, we're asking through our social media. We get a lot of people saying they want to work with us, so they'll just submit resumes. But a lot of times it's word of mouth, both for our field staff and our uh, marketeers. Um, it's word of mouth. Um, and we do have a lot of farmers who come. I just had someone the other day. In fact, I was out in the fields and someone came up to me and was like, hey, how's it going? I was like, hey, how's it going? And, uh, and they asked if we were hiring. And so then I'll say, okay. Just tell me about yourself. And the same thing, I can usually tell in the first five minutes if it's going to work out. Um, and then I will say, well, we're not hiring right now, but send, put your resume in at the office um, and make sure you leave a way that I can contact you. Uh, we have a lot of staff come from Mexico. Everyone that we hire is legal to work in the U.S., um, but a lot of times they live in Mexico. Like I said, you can see it from the farm. So their commute 
Um, they just cross the border. It takes them two hours to cross because it's the busiest international border oh. crossing in the world. And it, they can live 10 miles away and it takes them two hours to, to get to work. But certainly um, very diligent, very devoted. And I think, because, again, because we don't do piecework, because it's not seasonal, you know, they know that they're in with a company. We offer health insurance to all of our employees. We offer a 401k to all of our employees. Do they all take it? No, but we offer it to them all. Um, and so we treat our, we treat our staff the way we want to be treated. And I think that has created loyalty. Do they love us all the time? No, <laughs> of course not. Um, but I do think I, I know that I'm, I'm humbled by them and I'm devoted to them and I'm advocating for them. And I imagine, or I hope that they have a sense of that and, and that's why they come and that's why they stay. Do you guys do similar things with, with your farmers as you do with your marketeers as far as setting targets for performance? Do we set targets for performance for them? Sometimes. I mean, are, okay. Yeah. No, sometimes it depends. So, um, it, again, because of their exposure, by which I mean to the elements, I would say that is less, I would say not as much. So when it's like 105 degrees out or it's 100 degrees out, I mean, they're working 10 hours a day and it's 100 degrees. And how would I like to work in 100 degree weather for 10 hours? How would I like to work for 10 hours when it's pouring down rain in the mud. Um, so the beauty is that's less than 20% of the time because it's San Diego. Um, but there is absolutely an expectation of this order is coming up and it's this many boxes. I mean, they know what needs to get harvested in a day and that gets done. So I guess, but I would say we don't use the incentivizing program with our field staff the way we do with our farmer's market staff. And that's causing some inspiration for me. Like maybe we should, maybe that would work with them. That the field staff tends to have different, the field staff tends to be inspired by different things than our farmer's market here staff. Let's put it that way. So something that you've talked a lot about is during our conversation today has been the farm tours that you do. And yes. if, if you look on if you look on the Susie's Farm website, there are I mean farm tour after farm tour after farm <laughs> tour. And it's clear that it's important to you. Yeah. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit more about how you structure those farm tours and and what you want to accomplish with those, as well as some of the pricing that you've got in place on that? Okay, sure. I'd love to. Yeah, I love the farm tours. It's my favorite thing. And having people down at the farm. So whether it's private events like weddings, the whole agro-tourism thing, right? Um, I really, the reason that we started doing them was to connect with our clients. 
it was I one of the reasons that I started the farm, like I said, was because I wanted to nourish our community and you can't always see that. So I wanted to see the end product a little bit. And I wanted them to come down and see where their food was grown. Uh, some of the grocery stores here in San Diego, whatever, any grocery store that you go to, there's a massive disconnect. If you can get tomatoes in January and zucchini in January and eggplant in January, you don't have any concept of the world outside, like the weather <laughs> or the earth or how plants grow or just those different elements of those ecosystems. When you're getting broccoli in July, you're just taking that for granted. Like I'm in the mood for broccoli. Your body doesn't even want to eat broccoli in July. You know what I mean? Your broccoli, right. your body doesn't want to eat it then, but you're so disconnected, not just from the world outside, but from the world inside you. Your body doesn't want to eat watermelon in January. It's too cold and it's too wet when it's already too cold and too wet. Your body in January wants to eat what grows then, which is for us in the Northern Hemisphere, beets and carrots and potatoes and onions. That's what your body needs. So that winter squash that you grew all summer long, it wants that. It needs that fortifying, sustaining food. And in the summertime, it needs light food that's easy to digest that won't weigh it down. That's what all your fruit is, your cucumbers. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, sorry, but that's just... So that's where the tours came from. Like, do you even know what's going on? <laughs> you can tell me all about the Kardashians, but you can't tell me what's going on in your body, in your heart, in your soul. In your mind, you can't tell me that because you are filling your body with stuff that your body doesn't want, stuff that your heart doesn't want, stuff that your mind doesn't want. I'm not saying don't listen to the news, but some friends of mine were talking to me about the, the debate the other day, right? The vice presidential debate or whichever one it was. I don't care. And I told them, I stopped watching and listening to the news 15 years ago. I want to live in a state of peace. And I don't think that that's what they're promoting. They're not promoting peace. So I don't want to be around people like that. And they might end up leading the country and God bless us all. But like, I don't want that. And so that's where the tours came from. Like, yeah, you got here and you were rushed and you didn't know how to get here. And you're driving like crazy. And your GPS told you to go the wrong way. You know, ah, you don't know how to get here. And then you get here and you get down and you're all scrambling around in the kitchen. Shh, don't jump around and don't do that. Don't, you know, oh, babe, let's all, let's all just take a breath. Hey, look at all this space out here. Do you see these two acres of sunflowers here? <laughs> Have you ever stood in front of two acres of sunflowers? Now let's walk, not on the sidewalk. When was the last time you walked on dirt, on the earth? I've had kids come down and tell me when I encourage them to come into the pea rows with me and harvest peas. The kids have told me those aren't peas. <laughs> uh, yeah, they are. No, they're not. Yeah, pretty much they are peas. Come here. 
Come on. To walk in there, these kids, eight years old, I'm not talking about like two and three year olds, 12 years old, 14 years old, walking in the rows. The peas are blossoming. The wind is blowing their hair and the plant. They're walking in the green. They're calming down. That nature effect is starting to happen to them. Here's a pea right here. They pick it off the plant. They take their fingernail, they run it along the seam, and they open it. The, the ecstasy, I'm not sure that Santa Claus or the Toothberry are providing the type of surprise and emotion and, and delight that opening those pots of peas did. And when I saw that, that was in October of 2009. I said to Robin, I was like, we're having tours at the farm. Those kids didn't even know that peas grew out of the ground. They didn't know what the plant looked like. They, and then you couldn't stop them. Then they were eating their vegetables. It wasn't a fight at the dinner table. I just left them in there for 20 minutes. And then they came running back. These were the same kids, October of 2009. I had invited a private, uh, uh, some friends of mine, right? The farm was still small, to our pumpkin patch, our quote-unquote pumpkin patch. We had planted like four acres of pumpkins. I've always loved pumpkins. This is really where the tours came from. And uh, like a kid in a candy store with that seed catalog, all these different types of pumpkins, things I had never seen before in my life. Because I grew up going to a grocery store just like everybody else. And I grew up going to the pumpkin patch just like everybody else. And there's the small orange ones and the middle-sized orange ones and the big orange ones. And there's the short, fat, right? There's the short, fat orange ones and then there's the long, tall orange ones. And that was it. That's all I ever saw. And they were, you know, $3, $5, and $7. That was it. And they were all on hay bales. You didn't actually go into the field to get them. You just went into this, like, whatever, pop-up, I guess, <laughs> pop-up pumpkin patch where they maybe had, like, uh, some carnival fair type things, too, something like that, maybe. So when I invited these friends down, I was like, let the kids come down and pick pumpkins. It'll be awesome. It'll be so fun. Actually, it all happened on the same day. So our girls were about two and a half at the time, and it was their first down time down at the big property. This is when we had gone from one acre to three acres to 40 acres. And I drove the minivan. The, the soil is super sandy where we are because we're so close to the ocean. And I got out uh, our youngest daughter, Inez, put her on the ground. And she was like, whoa, whoa, you know, they're still toddling. And I got our older daughter, Sylvie, out. And I pulled her out of the car. Sylvie's our nature girl anyway. Pulled her out of the car, set her down in the middle of this property that we call Kiki Town. So Sylvie's there. I want you to be able to imagine Sylvie. She's two and a half years old. She's got light brown, curly hair, big, beautiful blue eyes. And she's very, she's like an S. Her body looks like an S as well. So she's just like very soft and she looks like an S. Inez looks like an I. So she's tall and thin and long. <laughs> so Sylvie's standing there in the middle of the property, right? Like in the middle of 40 acres, which is in the middle of this big county park which is 1,200 acres. So she's in the middle of all this space, this tiny little girl. 
and she's getting her balance. So just the way when we get our balance and we kind of put our hands out to get our balance, she's standing there. Her legs are like straddling a little bit. Her hands are out and she looks to the West, feeling the breeze come into her face. And then she looks to the east toward the mountains and she sits down on the ground and she pulls off one shoe and one sock, the same shoe and the same sock. She lies down in the, in the soil, in the ground, and she starts picking up handfuls of soil and she starts pouring them on herself from her head (laughs) all the way down her body handfuls and handfuls of soil just bathing herself like baptizing herself with the soil and i was like wow then these kids come down to the pumpkin patch and they say where are we supposed to play and i look around at the 40 acres and i say wherever you want it's all yours just don't go out in the street they're like, but where's the pony ride? And where's the jumpy castle? Which I'm not disparaging anybody who has that. It was more the idea that these kids had never had that kind of space and the freedom that comes with it. And then they didn't know what to do. That's when I walked them into the peas. And when all these light bulbs started to go off, my friends with their kids pulling these pumpkins, look at this one. It's gray with knobs on it. Look at this one. It's, I've never seen this color before. A white pumpkin. Yeah. Let me cut this one open for you. Look at these seeds pulling the plant out. So pulling the fruit with the plant trailing behind. Wow. Oh my gosh. This is amazing. I've never seen a pumpkin plant before. All of these things started to, like my brain just started to explode. And I was like, these are all people that I know, I respect, I love. These are well-read people that have been around the block a couple times and they've never seen anything like this before. Now imagine all the opportunities we can provide for people. Just imagine all the people in San Diego that we could provide opportunities for. And if we just open the farm up to anybody who wants to come, they could get that experience of seeing the fruit still on the plant. People don't even understand what they're eating. I'll ask them, when you're eating vegetables and fruits, do you know what you're eating? And people look at me, some people know. But I'll tell them, did you know that you're eating flowers? No, I'm not eating flowers. Yes, you are. It's in the name of the vegetable. Call it flower. You're eating the flower bud. You can see their brain explode. What? So for me, that is a gift that you're giving people of greater awareness, both self-awareness and general awareness. So that when we look in a field and I'll say to them, for example, look at this pumpkin patch, play farmer for a day. How does it look? And then, you know, people don't always necessarily want to say anything because sometimes I'm pointing out some pretty bad looking fields. Well, that looks pretty dead. That looks pretty bad. Yeah. What would you do? 
if you are expecting to have 7,000 people come down and harvest pumpkins, and these are the pumpkins that you planted, and you got a 20% germ on this field, what would you have done? What? Huh? Yep. So then again, you're just giving it in perspective. So that if they do go back to their routine of shopping at the store, they don't take it for granted anymore. That the food that was there cost something. It cost an exchange of people's lives. My farmers spent 60 hours this week so that you could have that watermelon that you didn't eat because you got too busy and you threw it away. And it took me or us, it took us four months to grow it. So I know it's no big deal for you, maybe, but it's a big deal for us. That's my life's work. And that's the life's work of 138 or 40 people or however many people. That's our life's work. We are exchanging our life energy for you. Now, I'm not saying, wow, look at me, wow, who? I just mean, now put it in perspective. How many other things do we take for granted? That even the person, you know, the person at the gas station, that person's exchanging his life's work for me to be there so that that gas station is open when I need it. You know, and we can just keep going from there. So it's really an exercise in awareness about all, all of those things. It's $10 for the tour and then an additional $10 per person to harvest. So some people want to harvest or maybe there's just going to be one harvest bag per person. And some people just want to harvest. So I just get those people harvesting. Okay, here's tomatoes, here's eggplant, here's whatever. And some people don't realize. I can often realize, but those people don't always realize that a lot of the things that I'm saying in the tour are specifically directed to them for what their needs are. And again, I can perceive that. And then some people ask a lot of questions. You know, some people are right up in front. They're walking right with me. They want to know all about the farm technically. How do you do this? How do you do that? Tell me about your growing season. How did you pick your seeds? Where do you get them? How do you lay the black plastic? What, you know, what kind of tractors do you have? Blah. And some people are hanging way in the back and they're just enjoying a day out, walking around, feeling the sun on their face, feeling their bodies in space and time. And I'm not like, hey, you back there, keep up, let's go. And I'm not like, wait a second, sir, I'll answer that question in the 27th minute of my tour. You know, save all questions for the end. I just, I just play it like I see it. <laughs> and that's what's awesome is the tours are all customized. Some are specific. Like I said, if I do the La Jolla Garden Club, they're going to get a different kind of tour than, um, you know, the Young Presidents organization. But everybody's going to get something. They're going to walk away with a value, with a deep, deep value. I think it's fantastic that you're doing tours as, you know, a community service, as something that is bringing in a, a little bit of revenue for the farm. But but it's really, to me, feels more about you putting your energy and the farm energy, farm's energy out into the community. Do those people turn into customers? Yes, they do. Not always, but yes, they do. And whether they buy something at the farm stand that day or if they be shine up for a CSA, 
or they come for one of our UPIC events or one of our farm dinner events or whether they start following us on Facebook, they all eventually do become clients because um, they've been moved. They've been moved. And it deepens the relationship. It's not just a thing out there. It's, it becomes them. It becomes them. The other thing I would say is tours make more money than vegetables. Tours make more money than vegetables. When you say that, in terms of your overall revenue for the farm, you're making more money on tours than on vegetables? The profit margin is higher because on tours, all I got to do is pay somebody their hourly wage to walk 20 people around at $10 an hour. I mean, at $10 or $20 per person, the field for an hour and a half. And of course- it's the profit margins high because you've already got the vegetables, right? Correct. You're not going to say you if if Susie's farm was just trying to do farm tours and wasn't also trying to grow vegetables. I think that okay. would be a real challenge. But it's really like a value added process where you've already got the product there. You're just you're layering on top of it now. Correct. But the other thing about that as well is that the I don't have to grow 170 acres worth of vegetables. I can grow less vegetables and still do the tours. And that's one of the reasons why we pulled back from the acreage is because the cost, the land is expensive, the water is expensive because it's not on a well, it's on city water. So the city water rate that we pay is the city water rate that we pay. It's not an ag rate. Because here in San Diego, the, the water district of San Diego is not obliged to provide water to agriculture. Their mission, their obligation is to provide water to the citizens of San Diego. And so if you choose to be on an ag rate here in San Diego, as soon as there's a drought, your water, you're the first to get cut. Now, San Diego is currently, and the state of California is currently experiencing an eight-year-plus drought. And I don't know how it is in Wisconsin, but you can't grow food without water. And it doesn't <laughs> it's, fall It's true the here, sky. too. Yeah. It doesn't, and it doesn't fall from the sky here in San Diego, so it's not free. You know, our ecosystem here is like the Mediterranean, um, Australia, Chile, South Africa. We've got that Mediterranean zone. So we have short, wet winters, long, dry summers. It's temperate, but again, we were expecting an El Nino last year and our friends and family were like, oh my gosh, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh, I'm so excited. I can hardly stand myself. We're finally going to, the reservoirs are going to go up and soil is going to get great. So anyway, my point is it's expensive to grow here. So, it, so that's what we're looking for right now is the tipping point. What is the least slash most that we can grow? the most cost-effective and still and turn a profit. That's what it boils down to. We're all trying to make some money, but at any rate, the tours have the highest profit margin. Yes, because the fields are, are in production, but um, you know, when we had 170 acres and I was trying to cover the tour in 170 acres, 
our clients didn't want to walk 170 acres. I like it, but they don't like it. <laughs> That's great. So on that note, Lucilla, I'd like to turn to our lightning round that we do at oh. the end of the show. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, you ready? All right. What's your favorite tool on the farm? My hands. And your favorite crop to grow? My favorite crop is blue scotch kale. Blue scotch kale. Yep. Okay, so I'm a kale snob, right? Because I live okay. in Wisconsin and it, and, it, and it freezes and it gets cold. And, you know, some of the best kale that I've had is stuff when I when I used to snowshoe to my upper fields when yes. it was 30 below and, yes. and crumble the leaves into the yes. bag, you know, because yes. you couldn't actually pick them out of the plant. How do you get kale to taste any good at all in San Diego? You know, it's one of those things. It's like, uh, I don't have a point of reference because I've never had snowshoed, crumbled, <laughs> snowy kale. And I promise you, Chris, all the kale that's in the grocery store is not snowshoed, crumbly kale either. That's all kale from... Well, a lot of it's from Mexico or from the Imperial Valley or from the Salinas region, right? Yeah, in California. That's right. That's right. And so I don't have anything to compare it to. Now, I will tell you, and I tell our clients too, for example, our carrots are better in the winter. Do we grow carrots in the summer? Yes. Are they fine? Yes. Are they sometimes even good? Yes. But our clients want carrots. And so they're willing to tolerate, quote unquote, homegrown, fine carrots that were driven from San Diego as opposed to shipped from somewhere else. The other thing is the same with the, with the kale. Like, I don't have anything to compare it to, but I know that it's better when we have frost down here as well. And so is our cabbage. It's all better in the winter. We don't grow it in the summer, I'll tell you that for sure. And finally, Lucila, if, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Don't despair. Don't despair. It's all going to work out. And it's not in your hands anyway. So relax. And do your best. That's all you can do. What a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for this interview, Lucila. It's been so much fun to talk to you and all the energy that you brought to this was just fantastic. Oh my gosh, it has been my absolute privilege. I'm so grateful for your time and your consideration. It's really been, it's been my joy. Thank you so much, Chris. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 90 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for De Alejandro. That's D-E-A-L-E-J-A-N-D-R-O. I'm going to say it again, D-E-A-L-E-J-A-N-D-R-O. Remember that you can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I want to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Whether you're supporting the show on a monthly basis through Patreon or showing us your love by leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, your support makes a difference. Thank you so much. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. And also, I would ask that you head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, talk to us in the show notes, tell your friends about us on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. 
Your reviews and your referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>